This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. What's going on, y'all? It's your host, Will, coming back for a new episode of the Hunt Stand Podcast. On today's episode, we're bringing on team member Brian Murphy to talk about antler growth facts. And specifically, we're going to be diving into what affects antler growth, how it gets affected from injuries, mineral supplements, protein, feed, all that stuff. We're going to go down some rabbit holes. That's, that's okay. That's what we do. We love deer. We love deer hunting. And that's what we're going to be talking about on today's episode. And y'all, if you haven't downloaded HuntStand yet, which if I'm a betting man and you're listening to this podcast, more than likely you have HuntStand downloaded. But if not, head to the Apple Store, Google Store, whatever kind of phone you got and download HuntStand. We do have the free version, which you get a few of the features that we provide. But if you upgrade to Pro, you can unlock everything from trail cam management, property line info, all the different things that we provide you can get through pro so make sure you explore that check us out if you haven't yet download HuntStand app we appreciate y'all tuning in to HuntStand podcast we're gonna get to brian murphy and antler growth facts um uh, and antlers are something i love to talk about i mean hell you if you're, if you're a deer person you don't like to talk about antlers then my goodness what do you what do you want to talk about meat <laughs> i don't know I look at them and, and and i'm to be honest i mean i'm i'm only moderately obsessed with the size of a buck's antlers i'm more obsessed with all the the uniqueness of what antlers are and and how they work and how they're so unique in the world in so many ways i mean that's what's gets me geeked out about them as much as anything but uh anyway yeah we can jump in and let it roll all right man well brian i don't think there's any introduction needed since we've already done this and the folks know who you are so just want to thank you for hopping on the hunt stand podcast with me again my pleasure well man today You've kind of already preluded to it, but let's dive into antlers and specifically pertaining to whitetail because that's your thing. That's who you are. So I want to talk about 
you know, let's, let's go through some of the facts about antlers, growth facts, and then I even want to see about debunking a couple of myths with you. So are you down? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's one thing I love to talk about is whitetail antlers. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's really fascinating because, you know, as hunters today, obviously, if you're a whitetail hunter, you're probably fascinated with antlers, the size, the shape, all the uniqueness of them. But this dates back millennia. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look around the world, uh, the cave drawings and things that date back to almost every culture on the planet, in almost every case, the, the drawings, the animals they revered were large antlered and large horned animals yep. um, by, by a long shot. So this fascination we have with antlers and with horned animals is, is I think, innate in many humans just as part of our, our evolution, you know, and, and I think when you talk about antlers, I think it's important to kind of start at the, the biggest level with antlers. And that is, what are they? You know, and I don't mean what are they in terms of their physical structure, but what's, what purpose do they serve the whitetail? Yeah. And, and, you know, biologists consider them secondary sexual characteristics. What does that mean? It means they're not directly responsible in reproduction. They're not a reproductive organ, but they are secondarily involved in terms of mate attraction, mate selection, that sort of thing. And some research done at Mississippi State shows that size does matter when it comes to (laughs) antlers. Uh, They actually um, did a very interesting experiment where they put different size sets of antlers on bucks and then and then uh, recorded doe behavior associated with those bucks with different size antlers. So the buck could be three year old, but he could have a six year old set of antlers on it and vice versa. So they were looking very specifically at, 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 at antler size. And they did see a significant difference in, in terms of mate selection and attraction. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense because unlike horns, which don't represent that individual animal's social status as much because a horned animal, we'll talk about a big horn sheep, they're going to have the largest horn the day they die. Uh, they could have, they could have been an outcast for several years um, and be relegated to a very low rank in that local population Whereas a you know a deer's antlers represent that animal's age and fitness at that point in life, uh, and I think most hunters know that if a deer or bucks you know allowed to live long enough, we're talking generally eight, nine, ten plus, that their antlers will decline. Yeah, and that doesn't happen in most cases because most whitetails are harvested well before their prime, let alone you know into those very old age classes. But what's also interesting here, and and some hunters probably aren't aware of this that the whitetail we know today did not look the same a couple of million years ago. Uh, when the predecessor of the whitetail came across the, uh, the Bering Land Sea Bridge into North America a couple of million years ago, it didn't have antlers at all. Really? It had large, had a, it had large canines, uh, large canine teeth, much like the mutt jack or the Chinese water deer does today. It came across as, as kind of a remnant of the old world deer uh, evolutionary track and slowly evolved uh, what we now know is this deciduous regrowth and drop antler that we all recognize. But for, for many, many, many years, they didn't have antlers at all. They had large canine teeth, and that's how they defended themselves and also how they attracted mates. And a very small percentage of whitetails today still have those canine, upper canine teeth. You'll see examples of it online. You just have to Google it, deer with you know c- canines, and you'll you'll see uh, you see one. In fact, I saw a very good case of it from Louisiana just a couple of years ago, where this deer, uh, this buck, not only had upper canines, but also had a very distinct uh, dark facial marking uh, with some stripes that 
resembled a, a mutt jack or, or like a roe deer, if people know what those look like, um, different facial markings, it doesn't matter. But the bottom line is this was probably the closest living remnant we had and have seen in science for, you know, a few thousand years. Um, this is a pretty cool individual deer that was killed in Louisiana. But anyway, um, and so the whitetail slowly started to lose these upper canines. Again, a small percent hold them today, but very small taxidermists run across them, and, you know, a few each year. Yeah. And then they developed what um, what, what I would call an interme- intermediary semi-antler uh, structure, much like the pronghorn, the American pronghorn, which is uniquely North American. Yep. Where yep. It keeps a piece and sheds a piece. So it has kind of a bony understructure and a sheath that it, it, that it will shed. Uh, whitetails had a structure similar to that for, for many hundreds of thousands of years and then mm-hmm. slowly lost that and developed what we have today. So that's what we're starting with. Um, we know that there are some, some very unique differences among antlers and horns. Uh, I mentioned one of those a moment ago that, uh, you know, horns start growing, you know, early in a, in a male's life and stay on them until they die. Yeah. Uh, antlers, of course, are shed and regrown annually, and that actually is is a is a plus on a number of fronts. Um, if a whitetail damages its antlers and growth one particular growing season, it has a chance to fix it. Uh, obviously, if it's just in velvet, that that injury is probably not going to cause any permanent recurring injury. Unlike a broken horn, you know, a big horn sheep uh, busts its horn, it can't ever fix it. It's broken for life. Yeah. Um, some other major differences between the two uh, antlers grow from the tip uh, horns grow from the base a uh, big difference there so the growing tips of deer's antlers are the are the growing portion and they're very tender and that's why bucks of course avoid contact with their growing antlers in growing season uh, and if they have to fight during that that velvet time of the year they stand up and kick box like does they don't use their antlers for that because they are very tender and they're growing uh, we also, you know, the, the probably the most important difference between the two is that antlers are, when they're growing, are true bone. Uh, they have a bony matrix, just like an arm, mm-hmm. uh, covered with skin we call velvet, which is much like human skin. So if you can imagine the, the, the energy demands that it takes for a deer to grow essentially a new set of arms every year. And that's, that's kind of what we're talking about. You know, can you imagine having to grow, you know, two new arms every year? It's that's insane. Uh, it's yeah. It's just hard to even fathom. And, mm-hmm. and, and some really recent science, which I find quite fascinating. Uh, first is that they have now discovered that the process through which antlers grow is actually a controlled form of bone cancer. Um, something that, uh, is, is, is uniquely cervid, which is the deer family. What? Uh, they actually are the only known living creature of any significance that I'm aware of that can start and stop a form of bone cancer each year. I mean, how crazy is that? That is, that is interesting to think about from that front. I never thought about it that way. Well, a lot of people know how fast some cancers can grow. Mm-hmm. And so bone cancer can be a very aggressive form of cancer. So this allows the bone to multiply. And for deer, to, you know, whitetail can grow upwards of an inch a day per antler. Um, so you're talking about a lot of, I mean, rapid multi, you know, multiplication of cells to create that kind of, you know, to grow 150 inch set of antlers in basically, you know, a few months mm-hmm. uh, is, a, is a big undertaking. 
The other thing they found, scientists have found fairly recently, is that uh, deer, the deer family, and we're talking about all the deer out there, also go through a form of controlled osteoporosis each year. And because of the energy demands it takes to grow these these new arms each year, uh, they have to, they can't get enough uh, nutrients from their, their diet. So they have to rob those nutrients from their skeletal system. What? So they're, they're really drawing their bones down to get the calcium and phosphorus and other things they need. So they're actually going through osteoporosis and bone cancer at the same time to, to produce these things we call antlers. And, and then they can reverse, they can stop the, the growth, the cancer process, and they can stop this osteoporosis and rebuild themselves. And humans can't. If we go through osteoporosis as you know, aged adults, we can't really fix it. We can take supplements mm-hmm. and try to combat it a little bit, but we can't heal ourselves. A whitetail can. Uh, really, really cool stuff. I mean, there's some, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm a geek about deer in general, but when it comes to antlers, they're just so, so fascinating that it's, uh, that it's, that's just hard to even sort of fathom. So now, go ahead. Are they already trying to solve cancer using whitetail deer? Yeah. Yeah. So, so both uh, cancer as well as osteoporosis, mm-hmm. uh, both are subjects of medical research. A lot of it in Asia, there's a, a very, uh, you know, I would say uh, pioneering PhD researcher in, in China that's doing a lot of this research, uh, not on whitetails, but on deer in general, which yeah. is the same process. Uh, this pioneer a lot of this stuff. You know, he's also discovered a couple other interesting things that um, are uniquely deer. Uh, one is kind of a gee whiz, but it's interesting, and that is that the connection between the the dead antler when it's hardened, I mean, mm-hmm. the mature antler, not the growing one, that connection between that dead piece of bone and the deer skull is the only known living connection between dead and living tissue of any mammal where basically you're the, the, the living animal is holding on to a piece of dead structure. Um, and that's actually done through a, a very complex process called aversion canals, which are these little straw-like things that uh, eventually wither up and break when the hormones change and so forth. And we can talk about that later. But the other thing he's found, which is also a subject of, of current research in Asia, is that antler velvet, the skin that covers antlers during the growth, is the only tissue that we've discovered in science that heals consistently with zero scarring. No matter how a buck, you can slice that, that velvet up in, in, in velvet, you know, not that you would, but you know, literally you could take a knife to a deer's velvet and cut it up any way you wanted and it would all grow back with no, heal, no scarring at all. So they're looking at using that for like burn victims. Wow. And, and surgeries and things of horrific nature in humans where we want healing to occur with no scarring. Uh, huh. So, so yeah, there's some, there's some pretty, pretty cool things going on out there in terms of whitetail antler research and science that have human direct human implications. I just learned a lot today. <laughs> I just uh, learned a lot, man. <laughs> no, there's, there's a, there's a whole lot out there. Now, you know, when it comes to a hunter, of course, you know, mm-hmm. their questions don't generally dive in that deep and, you know, being a, not an at all, you know, but it's, I think it's cool stuff. You know, most of the questions I get about deer antlers, you know, uh, range from, you know, when does a buck reach its maturity, you know, antler wise. Mm-hmm. And generally that the answer to that's between five and seven years of age yep. in general. 
Uh, however, if anything, we're, we're seeing that some older bucks often will reach their peak quite a bit later. I mean, there are examples of, you know, nine and 10 year old bucks being larger than in any time prior to that in their lifetime. Uh, that's probably unusual. You know, that window yeah. between five and eight is probably the best window. But, mm-hmm. you know, one thing that it's important here is that kind of like humans, you know, a, a human male is typically considered in his prime somewhere from the late teens to the mid thirties in terms of overall fitness and strength and that sort of thing. That's generally the window. So I got about five years left is what you're there telling you me. <laughs> but, 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 but you could have gotten hurt mm-hmm. in a car wreck in your twenties and be stronger in your thirties yeah. and vice versa. And the same with a, a whitetail. So they've got a window of opportunity. There's no guarantee that a five-year-old is going to be bigger than a four-year-old and a six-year-old is going to be, we don't know that mm-hmm. in general, there's an increasing pattern with all things considered equal, but things aren't considered equal in the environment. You know, in Texas, uh, obviously, you know, rainfall drives a lot of things in South Texas. Yep. Uh, nutrition generally drives, a, 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 you know, the, 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 you know, the big window across much of the country. But injury, uh, a deer could get injured as a five-year-old when it should have been at its peak or maybe a six-year-old and then come back better as a seven or an eight-year-old. Uh, so, we, you know, we have to keep in mind things like hemorrhagic disease, fighting injuries, mm-hmm. you know, a number of things that could cause them to go down one year and then back right back up another. So, I, you know, I tell hunters that if you're watching a particular buck and you got a pretty good idea of his age, you know, once he hits that five-year-old age bracket, you know, keep an eye on him. He may be his best at five. He may be his best at seven. He, you know, so there's some up and down. So just because he declines one year, don't immediately shoot him and say he's going backwards. Yeah. I like to see at least a two year trend in a buck. You know, if, if my goal is to harvest him at his absolute peak, you know, I want to see a couple of years before I, before I make that call, generally speaking. Um, so we know that, um, we, we know what, what causes antler growth and, and casting in terms of the timing of it. It's mm-hmm. photo period. Uh, photo period is just the length of daylight hours, and that changes throughout the year, obviously. And we know that, you know, the rapid uh, increase in day length after the, the winter solstice and, and, you know, third week of December, you know, we start seeing increasing day length. That triggers uh, a response in the, dirt, in the deer's uh, eye, its optic nerve and its eye. That starts a chain reaction of events that sends signals down to its reproductive organs to say, hey, shut down, it's over. And it starts the slow process leading up to shedding up or casting of the antler. Yeah. Uh, eventually, that uh, those testosterone levels reach a low enough point that it triggers the release, the breakage of those straws, those things called reversion canals that hold the, the, the antler to the skull, those break, and they fall off. And you know, get a lot of questions about, you know, which bucks cast first or which ones hold it. Any difference in North and South? The answer is yes, yes, and yes. And sometimes, um, so in general, in general, and these are generalities in general, we see older bucks casting earlier than younger bucks in the Northern U S Yeah, and we see the reverse of that in the South in general. And these are very general trends. Okay. Um, and the reason, reason being is that I think most hunters are aware that deer in the, you know, in the central to northern states all breed mostly in November. Uh, they have pretty consistent ruts and they have more harsh, severe winters. So the bucks rut hard and fast in November and they start hunkering down to basically conserve energy and survive. Yeah. And so they their testosterone levels decline quicker and they drop their antlers a little bit earlier than the younger bucks in the south. 
we have very different breeding seasons, very protracted, very, you know, long breeding seasons. Mm-hmm. The older bucks need to keep, you know, their antlers on their head and their testosterone levels high longer. So we see bucks carrying their antlers sometimes into March and April. You know, it's not uncommon to see bucks with, you know, heart headgear on in March, April, and sometimes even May, which is extremely late. Wow. But most most will cast in, you know, February, March. Yeah. In the in the South. Uh, when it comes to timing, uh, individual bucks timing of casting their antlers. I get questions to, you know, does the same buck drop about the same time every year? Well, we don't know in the wild is the answer. Um, in captivity in deer, deer breeding facilities and captive, you know, research facilities. Yes. Most seem to, to cast within about three days of the same date each year on the calendar. Oh, wow. So that's pretty cool. But in those situations, we have to keep in mind that those deer have a constant supply of nutrition. Yeah, they they're do. They're not stressed. They're, everything's consistent when they're in captivity. Controlled environment. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't know if that occurs in the wild or not. Mm-hmm. Um, we do uh, also know from this captive research that most bucks cast both antlers within a 48-hour period. So, again, in captivity – controlled conditions. Most bucks will cast their antlers within about three days of the same date on the calendar and most within both antlers within 48 hours. Okay. We don't know again in the wild, we won't have any real data to suggest that. Um, you know, I know a lot of hunters, uh, that have found a lot of match sets of antlers close by when, you know, antler hunting. Um, I found a handful myself, mm-hmm. uh, find a lot more singles though. Um, same, but you know, think about it, even if a buck only carries it, an hour longer than the other one, one, an hour longer, he can walk, you know, a long way in an, in an hour, you know? Uh, so, so anyway, that's, uh, that's kind of what we know about some of the, the research, um, on, on antlers, um, you know, growth, uh, timing, that sort of thing. I like it, man. So I want to, with all the facts that have kind of been presented to us now, I want to talk about just a couple of myths that, you know, I've heard since I was a kid, and I've heard in different hunting camps. And so one of those first myths that I want to bring up is, and I think you'll probably know, but I think this is one of the most controversial ones. And I don't even know if you want to call this a myth, but once a spike, always a spike. So like down here in Texas, they have a, a doe and spike season that if you see a spike, kill it. Cause it's never going to be anything different. What's your take on that? Well, there's there's actually uh, a, a fairly long history of that argument, and it dates back to two different research groups, one in your mm-hmm. home state of Texas from the Kerr Wildlife Management Area, the other from Mississippi State. And and I think in, in, in both cases, they didn't make the statement that once a spike, always a spike. That actually would became more popular among hunters, kind of an interpretation of that research. Right. That's not what the researchers were saying. They were saying that if it's a spike at one and a half years of age, it's not ever going to be a decent buck later in life. In other words, it's going to be consistently behind the rest of the same age year and a half old bucks. Yeah. Uh, the, and that came out of the Kerr Wildlife Research data set where they selectively bred certain bucks to certain does on time with good nutrition and their offspring that were spikes didn't produce as good antlers as their brothers, their cohorts later in life but they had a very controlled situation where they were breeding specific does to specific bucks on time with good nutrition. Mm-hmm. So 
therefore the offspring, the male offspring that wore spikes didn't have any excuses other than genetics for having smaller antlers. <laughs> yeah. okay? They ruled out the other variables. Yeah. The research done by a good friend of mine, Dr. Harry Jacobson at Mississippi State, he looked at the importance of a birth date when that fawn hit the ground relative to the size of its first set of antlers. And they found a very strong direct correlation that for every month that a fawn was born later than it should be, in other words, its mom, its doe, missed her first breeding cycle or her second or third, in other words, had to be bred later in the season. For each month that fawn hit the ground later, there was a higher and higher percentage of them being spikes, up to 100% spikes when they were born, the last group of fawns born of the year, 100% were spikes at one and a half. Wow. So he showed that that birth date can be an incredibly powerful factor in terms of being a spike bug. Huh. More, more research in Florida, where the habitat's generally speaking pretty poor, it's not uncommon for nearly 100% of the year and a half old bucks to be spikes nutritionally. Uh, they just don't have the groceries. Yeah. Um, they can eat all the, you know, all the, the low quality vegetation. I mean, Florida is kind of like a great salad factory. It grows a lot of groceries, but they're not worth a damn. Um, so they can eat a lot, but it's not high quality nutrition. And so we know that nutrition and birth date and genetics all play a role here. So what, um, so what I tell folks is that if you have controlled every, every condition you can, in other words, you've got deer, a fine-tuned deer herd, they're breeding on time, you got good adult buck age structure, good sex ratios, good habitat, good spacing, in other words, density, that mm-hmm. if you have spikes at year and a half old, they're probably, based on research, not going to be as good as those with four, six, or eight points at the same age. Doesn't mean okay. they won't. You know, this is a bell-shaped curve of probability. Some okay. will be exceptional. Um, so in Texas, and it's almost only applies there, where many ranchers do have a surplus of bucks. <laughs> it's hard for hunters in much of the country to think about. We have too many bucks. we got to shoot some young bucks. Well, if you're in that situation where you have to shoot some young bucks, then, yeah, spike bucks make sense. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, some of them would be good adult bucks, but on average – if you've, if you've controlled, again, if you've done all those other things right first, then yeah, okay. But in most of the whitetails range, spike bucks, year and a half old spike bucks are a product primarily of late birth or poor nutrition or both. And so shooting spike bucks at one and a half years of age in most of the whitetails range makes no sense at all. And if you're in Florida or a very poor quality habitat, if you shot all your spikes, you'd shoot every year and a half old buck you have. It'd be hard to ever have anything else. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, that's a, it's a myth with a sliver of, of truth to it. Okay. You have to really be able to apply that. Not once a spike, always a spike. That's a myth. That mm-hmm. part's a myth. But once a spike as a young buck, you're going to be a poor buck forever. That can be true, but it rarely holds water to the bigger test of did the hunter and landowner do all the right things first and manage buck age structure, sex ratios, nutrition, time of birth, all those things. And and in most cases, they can't pass that test. So, you know, removing spike bucks doesn't make much sense in most of the whitetail range. We're going to interrupt this podcast real quick, y'all, from a word from our sponsors. The Hunt Stand Podcast is brought to you by Brownie, makers of fine firearms, gear, and technical clothing best there is up next we got federal premium in their lineup of terminal ascent go beyond what you ever thought possible with federal premium terminal ascent 
And finally, work sharp tools. Sharpen every knife you own. All right, y'all. We're going to get back to this episode of the Hunt Stand Podcast. Okay. Well, that makes total sense. So the next one I have for you is something that I've heard before deer camps that um, Hunter may come back to camp and he's like, man, this deer, his right side was just, it was just shoved in. It was just all messed up or he had some kind of deformity or there was something weird going on with his antlers or like you've seen bucks that have what looks like there's an acorn growing up to time. And I've heard this from multiple people that, oh, was it on his right side? Well, yeah, it was injury. Whatever it was, was on his right side. Oh, well, he must have had an injury on the left side of his body. And that's what caused that on the right side. Have you ever heard that? And how how does that even hold up? So, so the answer is, is absolutely yes. Really? Okay. Question uh, with a little caveat. So, so, there's a phenomenon in, in the whitetail world uh, we call contralateral deformities. Okay. Contralateral, it means opposite. <laughs> we, biologists, we like to use fancy words. Um, <laughs> call it the opposite effect. Mm-hmm. So, and, and we don't fully understand the mechanism, but we think, we think that it is due to the central nervous system wiring harness that mammals have. And I think hunters know that the left brain in humans controls the right side of our body Yep. and vice versa. And so what we see with whitetails is if they have a severe rear leg injury, it will, in many cases, I would say most cases, if it's severe enough, will affect the opposite antler growth and shape. They will have a deformed opposite antler opposite to the rear leg injury shot hit by car or whatever you call it. It has to generally be a pretty significant injury to that leg to cause it. Yep. If it does, it will repeat pretty much every year. In fact, I've, I've heard of one or two examples where deer have recovered from that and produced a normal antler. I haven't personally seen it. And I've seen a lot of deer with this condition uh, over multiple years. So I would say that very few will ever fix themselves once they start, if they have a bad enough injury to cause it one year, it's probably going to repeat every year thereafter. It may not look exactly the same, but it will be noticeably deformed. Huh. Uh, so you'll have a situation where you have one very typical antler and one highly non-typical antler. Okay. That's generally a red flag for an opposite leg injury. However, when it comes to a front leg injury, we don't see that. as consistent of a pattern. With a front leg injury, there's a slight tendency for a same side injury. Okay with sometimes an opposite and sometimes both. (laughs) So what we see with the rear leg is very consistent, very predictable. When we see a front leg injury, we typically more often see Mm -hmm. a same side deformity, sometimes an opposite and sometimes both. So we don't really understand why it's less consistent, but an injury of some sort is consistent. It's just where it manifests on the body. Um, So, so that's a very common cause of, of the situation you describe. Uh, another fairly common cause of one typical antler and one non-typical antler is a damage to the pedicle, the stump from which the antler grows. Okay. So it can happen at, at antler casting. In fact, about 15% of the antlers that I've identified, thousands um, where I've looked at them, if you turn them over and look at the, the end of the, the cast antler, often you'll see a piece of the pedicle 
In other words, extra skull material attached to that antler than mm-hmm. should be there. So if you get some pedicle breakage during antler casting or fighting or whatever, something like that, often that will that will cause a deformity on that side because okay. you basically disrupted that normal shape of the pedicle and created some fractures there. And, you know, many hunters have gone out and, you know, in, here in the Southeast, one of the most common trash trees we have is called the sweet gum. We love to cut them down boy, because they just grow everywhere. But every time you cut them down, they sprout three more of them. <laughs> and, and that's kind of what's happening there when you break the pedicle is you can get some supplemental growth there, some abnormal growth. Okay. And, and in fact, it also explains, you know, some hunters have seen what we call accessory antlers, um, a projection protruding from a deer's forehead or its eye socket, um, you know, separate antler, if you will, but not a big one, but just some sort of spike or projection that often is caused by trauma to that skull region of the deer because the material from which antlers grow is not restricted to the pedicle. So in other words, the same tissue that antlers grow from Mm -hmm. does not only live on that little stump on the deer's head, it actually extends around the parts of the forehead, the eye socket, et cetera. However, under most conditions, hormonal control, lack of, of, of injury, nothing happens there. However, if something does happen, some trauma or what have you, often you'll get a supplemental antler to sprout from that region. Okay. Um, and in fact, deer, uh, deer researchers, this pretty cool stuff done in Canada hand, uh, 25 years ago now, where they've actually taken, taken some of that pedicle material and transplanted it to different parts of a deer's body, like its leg or its back, and grown an antler from it. Um, so we can, we can theoretically grow an antler on a lot of parts of a deer's body if we want to. Well, um, dang. Uh, now it's not a big antler. Um, it's a small one, but it does go through the velvet cycle and the shedding and all that. It's a, it's a real antler from that perspective. So, uh, you know, theoretically we could transplant that same material to a doe's forehead, give her the appropriate testosterone levels and probably produce antler does in yeah. theory. Um, probably some, 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 some other challenges there, but anyway, um, so suffice to say, we, we, we know a lot about that, but we still don't know a lot about that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, um, you know, some, there are a number of reasons, you know, hunters come back. I, I get them all the time. That's one of my areas of, of great interest is antler deformities. And there's a lot of reasons for them. Only one of which is genetics, mind you. Okay. However, however and it's one of the least common, um, but it's the one hunters most want to use as justification to kill more bucks. I shot this ratty deer to get him out of the deer herd so he's not breeding my does, right? And they come in with one that's got an injury on its opposite leg, or they got one with a skull or pedicle injury, or they mm-hmm. got one with other non-genetic related cause, but yet they killed the deer for genetic reasons. Somehow those two don't jive. If the condition for which you killed that buck is not, is not genetically based, it's got zero chance of making a genetic difference in your deer herd. <laughs> kind of common, common sense there, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's the, 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 uh, I guess the, the cool or maybe depressing thing about learning more about deer is that, you know, as a good friend of mine told me once science can get in the way of a good story. And, uh, once you understand the deer, well, you, 
a lot of your excuses don't hold up anymore. True. Um, you, can't, you can't use those same excuses when you know better. Um, and so, so yeah, so genetics are one cause. However, um, I would argue that if you see a deer with one typical antler, one normal antler, one highly abnormal antler, almost 100% of the time, that's non-genetic. There's some injury to the deer's body, to the skull, to the pedicle. There's something that occurred to that deer independent of genetics. Because even with genetics, normally you have some sort of, some symmetry. It may be an mm-hmm. ugly, non-typical deer, but it's going to have some balance to it if it's genetically based. Uh, if it's drop tines, if it's matching kickers and stickers, there's no amount of injury that can cause that. That's genetic. Okay. Okay. Uh, I was about to say, how do you, I was about to ask you how you differ those. So then like you're, I guess that's why you hear, um, well, what about like a seven point, for example, that might just have, you know, your, your main, your main beam with the, the fork and it's got the eye guard above it. And then the other side, it's like your standard eight point side. Yeah. That's, that, that's just probably genetics. I mean, if they, if they're producing, I mean, and a lot of hunters don't realize this, but the average whitetail, if you look across its range, everywhere north, south, east, west, mm-hmm. the average whitetail is programmed to be between a seven and a nine pointer at maturity, 120, 130 inches. Okay? Okay. That's what most whitetails are programmed to be mm-hmm. uh, with some being 10 pointers, of course, but they're less common than, you know, and then six pointers are uncommon, a true adult six pointer, yeah. true adult 12 pointer. Those are ex- extremes. If you kind of graph them, it kind of creates a nice bell-shaped curve around an eight-point buck. You okay. know, most most human males are going to be five foot nine and a half and weigh 175 pounds. At, you know, I mean, if you graph us all out, so that's just the way a whitetail's programmed. So what you're trying to do in any environment, whether it's South Texas or whatever, you've got a certain bell-shaped curve for your adult bucks. Yeah, your adult bucks in your area, based on your nutrition, your situation, are going to be about X, Y, or Z. You're trying to shift that bell-shaped curve to put more of those bucks into that special category um, by increasing nutrition and age structure. You can't fundamentally change your genetics in a free-ranging deer herd. Research is clear on that. Now, I don't care how much you cull. The great research out of Texas. Yeah. We can talk about that on a whole other show. But get that out of your mind. Shooting the odd cull buck or this isn't going to make one ounce of difference to your deer herd. Okay. What's going to make a difference is age structure, nutrition, all those things that you can directly control. And so you're just trying to shift more bucks from the middle part of that bell-shaped curve into the right side of it to where more are special. Gotcha. Um, by feeding them well and getting them enough age, you're going to push a few more from that, what may be typical for your area, 130 inches to 140 yep. inches or whatever. And uh, you're always hoping for that LeBron James to come along, and they do. They do. You, you, you see that just exceptional animal out there, but in most cases, you can't consider that the norm or even an expectation. Mm. That's a that's icing on the cake when those rare animals come along and um, key is to spot them young. If you can, you know, if you can identify a superstar as a two or three year old and really protect him, then you got a chance to, to have one of those you know, deer of a lifetime. Those studs. So I guess, um, you know, when it comes to the whole genetics versus injury, uh, don't shoot those young six points. And is kind of what you're telling me. Well, it depends on how young how young they are, of course, too. So, and it also it depends on entirely where you are in a management program. Okay. Uh, again, if you're if you're in need of removing some bucks, period, because you've got too many, and again, 
I've worked with a lot of Texas ranchers over the years that literally need to shoot some young bucks. They have yeah. so many. So yeah, shooting a slick six or a four-year-old seven-pointer, of course, you might as well shoot off that end because, you know, they're not showing you a lot of promise. They mm-hmm. might eventually become something decent, but, you know, if you're going to shoot some, you might as well shoot the, the poorest of each age class that you can. Right. Some of those are high fence situations. Many are. So they have a little bit more chance of shaping genetic flow mm-hmm. than a free range deer herd. Um, in most cases, you know, uh, and, and what I personally adhere to, you know, I'm, I'm in Georgia. I'm, I hunt a very intensively managed Georgia piece of ground. We got some great deer. We do shoot some management deer, but we'd never shoot one that I can recall before four and a half years of age of any, 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 we give every buck the benefit of the doubt. And once they hit, you know, three or four, they start to show you in most cases what they've got. Yep. Um, I've seen way too much change in one and a half and two and a half year old bucks to be calling into those age classes. Uh, I just see some bucks that'll blow your mind how much they can change. Uh, I mean, just off the charts, blow your mind. I'll tell you a story about one in a moment. Um, But once we identify one that, you know, let's say he is a a mainframe eight, but missing both brow tines. So he's basically a six. Um, And he's done it two years in a row. Now he's four. Of course, if we want to take him, go ahead and take him. Mm -hmm. We're not doing it thinking we're really changing genetics. We're doing it because he's taking up space and food. Um, you know, we can only run so many deer and at some point you got to make some decisions on, is that deer going to meet our long-term expectations or do we want to take him out as a management deer? Um, I don't like the word cull as much as management because culling, mm-hmm. you know, infers some in- incredible inferiority and that therefore you're making a positive change in your deer herd. Management deer is just a management decision. You know, I took him out because he was eating groceries. Yeah. Um, now I do have a quick story about a, 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 a deer that I, I helped grow at the University of Georgia. I was in charge of their deer research program for a couple of years and had a, a three-year-old buck that we got from North Carolina. And at three and a half, he produced a 80-inch rack at three-year-old. I would say pretty poor, right? Wow. Um, certainly not anything special. Little guy. I'd say below average. Yeah. We didn't change anything the next year. He blossomed into a 176-inch mainframe 10 with 14 scorable points. What did y'all do? We didn't jack him up with any special hormones. We fed him deer chow and let him alone. We didn't do anything special that a a landowner couldn't do out there. Now, what was really crazy with this deer is that was at, and he was known age. He was Mm -hmm. raised as a pet. He was picked up as a fawn in North Carolina and in our research. And because he was hand reared, we could use him at the university for some research. So that's why we took him in. His name was Cooter. And, uh, and, and, and Cooter was, was a cantankerous fellow because he'd grown up used to humans and yeah. considered them all equals. But so at, at four, we knew his age. So at three, he grew up, we, we brought him in, in like June when he was just starting his antler growth as a three-year-old. So at three and a half that fall, he produced 80, 80 inch, eight point rack, one small kicker off the base. So technically mm-hmm. a nine. Next year he blew up into a mainframe 10, 14 scorable points, 176 inch gross, just an incredible giant Southern deer for that age. And so we just couldn't wait to, you know, see what he could do at five or six. Well, the next year at five, nothing changed again. Diet stayed the same. Everything Mm -hmm. stayed the same. He reverted back to a mainframe 830 inch deer. What? Yeah. Now what's, what's this deer chow y'all were given? Was it just corn, protein? Just deer chow. Just. Okay. Okay. This was a captive deer research facility. We didn't have enough acreage to let them eat, you know, enough natural forage. So we just basically fed them a deer chow. This was nothing 
like I said, it was no jacked up special hormones, chemicals. You know, we didn't do anything, you know, out of the ordinary. But but I've seen this enough times where deer have changed so fundamentally mm-hmm. that you couldn't, without a distinguishable characteristic like a notch in the ear or a big white patch on them, you'd be hard pressed to convince yourself as a hunter that that was the same deer. That'd be hard. Uh, we knew because you know it was, that was Cooter number thirty two. You yeah. know, you know, and, you know, we we can't miss that one. No. Um, and so so you know, it takes sometimes those those known cases to really prove to, to, to deer hunters and deer researchers that a lot of times we see these just deer come up seemingly out of nowhere, mm-hmm. these giants. And sometimes they're there all along. And sometimes they're actually just interlopers coming through um, on, you know, on a dispersal event or an excursion, yep. you know, some trip outside of their normal home range. So there's a lot of reasons we can see these kinds of things occur, but uh but yeah, so so you know, we as much as we think we know about mm-hmm. antler growth and all this great science, we still don't know a lot. It's such a, an incredibly complex subject that uh, you know we, we we do know generally speaking, it's controlled by photo period. We talked about that earlier, and and some research has confirmed that that a deer, um, if you put them in a controlled lighted condition where they don't have access to natural daylight, you can adjust the length of light they they perceive just with lights. And researchers have able, actually been able to get a whitetail to go through three complete antler cycles in 12 months just by tricking tricking its brain. Yeah. You know, now it's summer, now it's fall, now it's spring, and it just condensed the year down to to, to, to basically a shorter period. So they, they got a deer to grow up upwards of three antler cycles in 12 months. Wow. And they tried to push it beyond that, it reverted back to one. So there must be some some sort of trigger in there that, at some point says we can't, we can't mobilize any more resources. We can only grow, you know, we went from growing arms to growing fingertips now. Jeez. Um, best we can do. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so a lot, a lot we, we know and a lot we don't know. Man, all this stuff is fascinating. Now I see why you were, why you did what you did for a career for so long. Well, I've, I've been a, you know, as you know, I've been a whitetail geek since. Oh Yeah. Been, and I, I can't get enough of this stuff. I'm an old man now and I just still love this stuff and just find it just incredibly fascinating. And mm-hmm. just uh, and the more we know, the more questions it, it, it raises and the more intrigue it, it offers. So absolutely cool stuff. cool stuff for sure. One of the, one of the other ones I want to ask you, and this isn't necessarily a myth and I, I think we'll wrap it up with this one, but um, in Texas and I, and I can only speak on Texas cause it's where I've hunted my whole life. We've had deer before that we call them stags, that they never lose their velvet. I don't know if that's the correct term, biological term that's been used, but they never get rid of their velvet. Why is that? Yeah. So the the, the reason for it can be varied, but the underlying cause is the same in every situation. And that is they do not have enough of the male hormone testosterone to finish the final part of the antler maturity process. Okay. And what I mean by that is, um, so a bucks loses its antlers, let's say winter, early spring, it starts its new set a few weeks later, it starts mm-hmm. growing his little nub and he's going to carry that, that set of velvet antlers through the summer, grow it out. And then right about in most parts of the whitetails range sometime in early September, they get this incredible surge of testosterone and testosterone is, is, is the male hormone, right? So that creates this final hardening of the antler. So when the antler mineralizes, okay, the velvet has to be shed because it becomes dead bone underneath that 
that that that tissue. Yeah. And so it is that surge of male hormone testosterone that causes this process to happen. Okay. It's also the same hormone that keeps them in the mood, so to speak, all during the breeding season. So these high testosterone levels are makes makes humans aggressive. It makes bucks aggressive. I mean, it makes them men, if you will. So half the year, bucks aren't really men. They're kind of it's most of the year. They have such low <laughs> testosterone. That's why they hang out in bachelor groups all summer with their buddies and have a great time. No fighting, no nothing. We get along just fine. We eat the farmer's soybean field or whatever, and we get along. And then all of a sudden, this testosterone hits them. Bachelor groups break up because they're ticked off at each other all of a sudden. You know, they're, they're vying for opportunities. So bucks that don't have enough of that testosterone never finish that final step. And so they stay in velvet. They stay in velvet hmm. for life. Uh, they do not ever shed that set of antlers. Yeah. And they carry them through the winter. And if it's in Texas, not a big deal because it doesn't get cold normally, that cold. If it's in, you know, northern Iowa, uh, then they can actually have some frostbite, some damage, because that is velvet mm -hmm. still on that. You know, it's not supposed to be out there when it's minus 25. You know, it's, that's supposed to be gone, right? So it can get frostbitten and what we call necrotic um, black. Uh, we can see some breakage of that antler because underneath it, it never hardened. So it's still brittle. So they're carrying porous velvet covered porous antlers. Um, so because they had low testosterone, why? Well, they can be born with a condition where the testes never descend fully out of the abdomen mm -hmm. into the scrotum. And so they have an internally high body temperature that prevents normal testosterone production, normal testy function. They can get in a fight. They can jump a fence the wrong way and hang something they cherish. Um, so there's a lot of reasons. Bottom line is they have insufficient testosterone levels. What caused it? A number of things can happen that can cause that to happen. Some can happen early in life. Some can happen later in life. Mm -hmm. but the bottom line is that if they, in fact, have velvet antlers, they're almost assured to have them for life. Research has shown that they don't grow 100% on top of 100% every year. They grow about 10 to 15%. So the buck's going to add about 10 to 15% new antler growth on top of that old set every year when the other bucks are growing their antlers. They start again too. Um, they start growing and they grow a little bit more on top of it. Dang. And uh, I've got one one story from from a, from my days at the University of Georgia as well. Yep. We, had, we had a buck. Um, his name was Bud. <laughs> And uh, Bud got, we, we used him to heat check our does. We had, students had to actually parade him in to a stall with a doe each day. And when a doe was in heat, she would stand. And anyway, he was vasectomized, so he never got any real action. But he was, so he was cantankerous. <laughs> Poor and guy. I can, I can understand that. <laughs> um, but he got so, so uh, rank and difficult to work with that he was hurting students. Um, he'd head, he didn't have his antlers on, but he'd still head butch into the wall. I mean, just really was an aggressive, ticked off, ticked off young man. And so we had two options, either to kill him or to dramatically alter his behavior. And I think you know where I'm going. By mm -hmm. altering his behavior, we had to remove two things he cherished. And his name went from Bud to Bud Light <laughs> after that process. <laughs> Well, Bud Light lost his ability to produce testosterone. Oh, man. That does not prevent a deer from growing antlers. It prevents them from finishing mm -hmm. those antlers. So he, he grew another set of velvet antlers and was placid as he could be. Boy, he was so gentle. He was just, I mean, just, just easy. <laughs> um, so we speculated 
the next fall, Dr. Carl Miller and myself um, said, you know, we ought to give Bud Light a little testosterone, let him harden that set of antlers and grow another set. So we delved into the literature to see how much one should give a buck of this testosterone. And, you know, the literature wasn't real clear there. So we, we did what most good hunters would do when planting a food plot. If it calls for six pounds per acre of the seed, you know, we doubled it. And so we ended up giving him a 180 milligrams of testosterone, which we didn't know if that was too much or not. That's what we kind of thought was right. Well, I can tell you it was on the high side um, quite a bit. Uh, so we hit him with this shot of testosterone. He was in full velvet in November, still in velvet. We hit him with this testosterone. And within 24 hours, he started to become a raving lunatic, running laps, bashing his head up on the fence. We, you know, we put him out in the largest outer, outer pin we had, about a half acre enclosure. And he ran laps, only stopping to scrape and rub when he could. And he'd run laps looking for a doe. And we dare put a doe in there. He'd have killed her. Um, so, and then what was really neat about it is as that testosterone quickly flushed out of his system, because it was externally, you know, administered, he didn't produce it. We mm -hmm. gave it to him. So it flushed through him pretty quick. So within a week, he went through an accelerated rut and an accelerated hardening, velvet removal, and antler shedding process. Wow. All that happened very, very quickly. And, you know, he, so he went through all of this and dropped his antlers and was done in less than two weeks. And what was interesting is his cast antlers, instead of being concave or sorry, convex, like most normal shed antlers would be, his was highly concave. It, the, the process through which those, those little straw structures had to collapse and break happened so quickly that he couldn't even form a normal cap to his antlers. You could have you know, taking a, you know, a tequila shot out of the top of his antlers. It was so <laughs> um, pretty, pretty cool stuff. So yeah, there's some, some, uh, you know, now, and, and another, you know, another caveat of that is there are true antler does as well. Mm -hmm. They're not very common. Uh, most are, are what we call hermaphrodites, which are actually bucks are deer with both male and female sex organs. So a lot of the so-called antler does that are killed, particularly the large ones, are probably hermaphrodites. Really? But there are some, some antler does. Most okay. of them are involved um, and 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 productive though. They're, okay. Uh, doctor, in fact, um, Dr. James Kroll, Stephen F. Austin University there in East Texas, had a doe some years ago that was in her late teens when I last checked in on her, and she had small velvet antlers, true antler doe, but um, had been given birth to twin fawns every year her adult life and was still cranking them out at age 14. So, wow. So, yeah, man, pretty, pretty cool stuff, man. This is all great stuff. I love it. I love just talking about deer in general. It's fun. And especially this time of year when we don't have much to talk about. So especially always something to talk about. Oh yeah. There always is, especially when it comes <laughs> to deer. Well, man, I know next time I get you on here, just to kind of give everybody a heads up, we're going to be talking about buck movements and maybe a couple of other things, but man, Brian, just appreciate you hopping on the podcast with me today. My pleasure. Anytime. All right. So there you go. We just want to thank Brian for hopping on the podcast and just given us some knowledge about antler growth facts and how everything is affected, you know, just being able to pick Brian's brain. I, I love learning all this from him. I've learned a lot about deer that I didn't know before. Things that I thought I knew have been disproved, all these theories, all these things that I've thought have uh, been either disproven, proven, or I've learned from Brian, learned a lot from him. So again, we just want to thank him for taking the time to hop on the hunt stand podcast with us and y'all we just want to thank y'all again for tuning into the hunt stand podcast there, 
there's a lot of other podcasts out there, you know, that y'all could be listening to. And so we just want to say thank you. We appreciate your support and we'll see you on the next one. Mm-hmm.